0: Hello, and welcome to the Verse Verse Podcast. My name is Justin Thomas, and I'm really excited for our journey from Genesis to Revelation a couple of chapters a week. My goal is that you would grow in your ability to understand the story that the Bible tells as a whole, as well as your ability to read the Bible for yourself. I would love to connect with you on social media. You can find us at verse slash verse, all spelled out, on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks again for tuning in. We're going to pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 20, um, and we'll work all the way through chapter 24. Where we are tonight is the aftermath of the rebellion that drives David from his throne. In fact, as we pick up here in chapter 20, David is still not back in Jerusalem, um, but he is on his way there, and he's being accompanied uh, by his own kinsmen the tribe of Judah, and they're kind of um, celebrating. We've seen many of the characters of the story, both good and bad, meet David at the River Jordan to walk with him the whole way. But in the midst of this, many from the northern tribes, Israel particularly of the Benjamite persuasion, are disgruntled. And as we saw last week, they seem to be disgruntled just for the sake of it. Um, But it finally kind of culminates, not just in kind of a murmuring crowd, uh, but in a particular voice who takes action and starts yet another resistance to David's rule. And so that begins in chapter 20, verse 1. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Berchi, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse every man to his tents, O Israel. And so basically he, he just says, you know what, we're, we're done with David. We're, we're done with you. And so here, verse two, all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Berchi. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And so we'll deal with that in the rest of the chapter. But as David arrives, verse three, David came to his house at Jerusalem and remember, or excuse me, and the king took the 10 concubines whom he'd left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. Remember that these women had entered into by David's son Absalom as a direct proclamation that I am now king and my father no longer is. Uh, And so here David provides for them he protects them, uh, but he puts them away and no longer is sexually active with them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as, in, as if in widowhood. Okay, now he's got to deal with, um, with Sheba. So verse four, the king said to Amasa, call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. Now remember, Amasa is a new appointment. He was actually the head of, general of Absalom's army and so David by uh, by his wisdom as a strategist trying to reunite Israel under his rule uh, and being pretty disgruntled with his first in command Joab uh, puts Amasa in this role and so he says in three days gather the armies and you as well so Amasa went to summon Judah but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed to him Now we're not told why that happens, it's just three days go by and Amasa uh, does not yet come back. And so verse 6, David said to Abishai, now Sheba the son of Bertrai will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And so he recognizes that this this, uh, may be a final fringe rebellion, but it actually creates a greater risk than it did with Absalom because it's a return to the Benjamites. It's a complete uh, removal of what's been going on in Israel. Uh, and so he here, because um, Amasa isn't around, he turns to Abishai, uh, which, remember, is Joab's brother and one of his other primary generals. And so he says, all right, well, we're not going to wait for Amasa, you're just going to have to go. And then notice verse 7, there went out after him Joab's men and the Chethrites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men, and they went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bertri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Okay. For whatever reason of his delay, he catches up with the troops here now in Gibeon. Now, Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh and he went forward and it fell out and Joab said to Amasa is it well with you my brother and Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him but Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand so Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails on the ground without striking a second blow and he died and so Joab again operates as a loose cannon He's not happy with the appointment of Amasa in his place. And so notice not only does he kill him, but he does it in a very um, cloak and dagger way. The idea here when it says that his sword fell out of the sheath is that he conveniently dropped it into his hand as he was approaching, but quietly and unseen. He doesn't raise it. He's just holding it by his leg. And then by kissing Amasa, he catches him off guard uh, and murders him. And so uh, Joab, again, is responsible for another death. But remember why we're being told this, okay? What would you believe... If you had been of the people of Israel and you've seen this rebellion under, under Absalom and now Absalom's number one general is found dead, that sounds, like, that sounds like an order from David. That sounds like exactly something David would want. And so here's him in the front of people saying everything's fine and then take him out back and get rid of him. That's what it sounds like. And as we've seen throughout 2 Samuel, although God does take care of the enemies of David, David doesn't do it. David is innocent of Amasa's blood, just as he's been of so many throughout the book, uh, whereas Joab is kind of piling up quite the body count. Uh, And so here, not only does he murder the general of Israel, but he steps directly into his shoes. And he continues the campaign. Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bertri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, whoever favors Joab, and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. Okay, and so uh, in politics, we have what's called the whip, right? The whip is the person who is working behind the scenes to make, e- make sure everybody's on board before the vote is taken. That's the role that this man plays. He wants to make sure this transition to uh, Joab as leader goes smoothly. And so he stays behind and counsels all the army as they've come uh, in, the, in the change that's taken place here. Um, But, verse 12, Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway, and anyone came by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that uh, that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bertree. In other words, Joab's takeover is just too visibly offensive for people not to be bothered by it. And so this guy doesn't just pre- uh, present uh, an angle. Joab's in charge now. He also hides the evidence, and then things go smoothly, okay? Um, there's, there's no value or justification to this happening. It's just Joab. It's just Joab. This is, this is who he's been consistently, and when it comes to David passing on his rule to Solomon, he will counsel him very frankly about the danger of Joab and what to do about it. Um, but for now, we're just told the story. Meanwhile, remember, they're pursuing this Benjamite named Sheba, verse 14. Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Makkah, and all the Burkrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Makkah. So notice, he comes here to a fortified city. And at this point, who is standing with him? Just his immediate family. Remember, he is a, a birchright, and it's just the birchrights who are now standing with him. It looked like, you know, he, it's, <laughs> it's like he turns and he says, everybody in Israel, follow me. And by the time he gets where he's going, they've just gone back to their tents. Um, and the only ones who stick it out with him here uh, are his closest family. And so Joab sets up a siege mound. Now, if you're not familiar, if you're in a fortified city... Uh, the greatest threat to you being taken over is basically making the top of the wall uh, the bottom of the ground, just creating a ramp that goes right over the wall so the army can get in. Now, as you can imagine, creating a siege ramp like that is dangerous uh, and courageous. It, it, takes, uh, it takes skill and courage to do so. plan here is basically to uh, defeat the city for the sake of Sheba. Um, So they cast up a mound against the city and stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. Now, one of the things that I think is really striking over the course of David's long life is how often women show up to spare the lives of people in the story. And so you may remember it's Abigail on behalf of her husband Nabal who hears about her husband's foolishness. Despite the goodness of David and all of his soldiers in taking care of uh, Nabal's uh, shepherds as they were out and adding extra protection, uh, he gives them nothing to eat at their request, Uh, and David loses his cool. He gets angry, and he's, uh, he's offended, and it's Abigail who comes out and, and basically smooths things over. In the same way, when uh, Absalom is living at great distance from David because of the killing of his brother-in-law, uh, it is the woman of Tekoa, also labeled a wise woman, as this one is, who comes and kind of gets David's attention that something else needs to be done. Um, and so here this woman comes and Uh, And she calls out and she says, "'Hey, where is Joab? "'Let me talk to Joab.'" Verse 17, he came near to her and the woman said, "'Are you Joab?' And he answered, "'I am.'" And she said to him, "'Listen to the words of your servant.'" And he answered, "'I am listening.'" Then she said, "'They used to say in former times, "'Let them but ask counsel at Abel.'" And so they settled a matter. "'I am one of those who are peaceable "'and faithful in Israel.'" you seek to destroy a city that's a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? And so she says, this is no enemy of Israel's city. This is, this is one of the mothers of Israel, she says, one of the cities that was known for the care and nurture and respect that comes with motherhood. In fact, she says it's a place where people significantly go to solve their problems, to get good counsel, um, to deal with disputes And things like this. And so she says, this is God's land. We are God's people. Why are you attacking us? And so verse 20, Joab answered, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. Uh, That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bitri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him alone and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Now see this for what it is. It's an affirmation of loyalty, okay? They are innocent, not just in the fact that they haven't done anything wrong, but they are not going to stand with the rebellion. And so she says, leave the city alone and we'll deliver over to you Sheba, this this man. His head will be thrown over the wall. Verse 22, the woman went to all the people in her wisdom And they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Beatri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now there's no getting around how gruesome that story is, but you also need to see significantly because of the wisdom of this one woman, many, many lives are spared. Okay? In fact, because we remember, it's not just Sheba who's in here, but his family members who stood with him in the revolt, and they are convinced to change sides at this point, and their lives are spared as well. Okay? This takes the rebellion of one man and deals with it as the rebellion of one man before it spreads. In the book of Ecclesiastes, it talks about the wisdom of a man who delivers a whole city. And we see that same thing here, but in this case, it's an, it's an unnamed woman who wisely and peacefully resolves this uh, without the death of the innocent. Uh, and so, Joab returns to the king, verse 23. Now, Joab was in command of the army of Israel, and Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Chethrites and the Pelethites. And Adarim was in the charge of the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder, and Shiva was the secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests. Ira, the Jerite, was also David's priest. And so just like the last time David settled into Jerusalem, we get a statement of his cabinet. Okay, and so now David's uh, court has been restored, and so has his cabinet. And now we kind of close the chronological story proper. And what follows in 21, 22, 23, and 24 24 is an appendix of sorts. Uh, In fact, it seems to fall away from the chronology uh, that we've been talking about and gives us some... um, some things that didn't fit in the narrative, but the author wants us to know. What's interesting about this material is, even though it seems to have been grafted onto the end of the story so far, that doesn't mean it's just been thoughtlessly pasted to the back of the book. It's actually one of the most organized sections. In Hebrew writing, a common way of structure, a significant way that has has to it its own sense of rightness in the hebrew mind is called a chiasm we get the name from the greek character chi an x okay and so a chiasm i think the best way to think about it is that the outer limits the first thing and the very last thing are a pair and then the next thing and the next to last thing are a pair and so on and so forth to a center and so it goes like an x like that um Uh, it crosses in the middle. Sometimes these are very small, like the saying of Jesus when he says, do not cast your pearls before swine, nor give what is holy to dogs, lest they turn and tear you to pieces, lest they trample it under feet, okay? It's not the pigs that tear to pieces, it's the dogs. And so it's pigs, dogs, dogs, pigs. That's chiastic, okay? Um, Oftentimes this is done in small ways like that because it's just more memorable. Because if you can remember A, B, you complete B and then you just have to fill in A um, to finish the loop. Uh, In longer sections, oftentimes it serves to show things that are of central importance. In other words, you know how we say on a treasure map, X marks the spot? When you find the very center of the X in longer passages, it's a mark of emphasis. It shows the direct center. So here's, here's what happens as we look at the next uh, six sections that make up the last four chapters. It begins uh, with a sin of Saul that leads to a famine in Israel, and through David's response to it, this famine comes to an end. It ends with a sin of David that leads to a plague over Israel, and it's David's response that ends the plague. And then the next two layers, so the second and the second to last, involve David's mighty men. It involves those who he raised up under him as leaders and their accomplishments. And then in the very center, we have two Psalms of David, two poems of David. And that really is the heart of what the author wants to draw our attention to because it really is the heart of understanding who David was as a king. So, with that being said, look here in chapter 21, verse 1. Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord. So, notice what happens here. Three consecutive years, uh, the harvest is destroyed by famine. There's not enough water for the crops. And this isn't happening in a small piece of Israel, but Israel as a whole. Now, notice here, it's not every single sign of trouble that David seeks for a spiritual explanation of. You know, there is, there is two dangers, I think, in life. Uh, and one is uh, chalking up to coincidence what is actually significant. And the other is finding significant in, in significance in random things. This is especially important as human beings, okay? Because human beings are order makers. So I don't know if you saw this article, but years ago there was an article on how there's an entire thought group online on the internet that exists that is convinced that when you put your iPod shuffle, well, on shuffle, uh, that it plays favorites, that it, it has specific songs that it particularly prefers for one reason or another. Now, the studies show over and over again, that's just not possible. It's just probability. But that's what we do with chaos. We naturally take things that are disordered and we look for order. Okay. And so, when it comes to um, our faith as Christians, we can make the same dual mistakes. One is to, to assume, um, it's, it's so hard to use this language, okay? In our modern world, we like to make a distinction between the natural and the supernatural, between the physical and the spiritual. Uh, the Bible knows none of those distinctions. The, the natural was, was supernatural in the fact that it's God-created, uh, the spiritual and the physical is united in human experience and can't really be separated. Philosophers call it psychosomatic unity. You are soul, in, in soul body and embodied soul, and you don't really know experience uh, apart from that dual reality. In the same way, uh, is it supernatural uh, when God brings about things through natural means or not? Right, as soon as you start to question these things, it, it, it kind of disentangles the philosophical categories we've created for ourselves. But nonetheless, there are times where things in our life are God trying to get our attention. In fact, Paul in the New Testament says, Whatever we sow, we will also reap, to use a farming metaphor. And so if we sow unto the flesh we will reap corruption, we will reap death. But if we sow under the Spirit, it will bring about life. And so there is such thing as consequence in the Christian life. But what I think is significant here is that David isn't, um, isn't trying to find some sort of sin-caused justification for every bad thing in his life. But he can spot a pattern. And the truth is, even here, he's not going, okay, we've done something wrong, he just asked the question, God, what is this about? It's interesting. David teaches us in the Psalms uh, to pray this way. Search my heart, O God, and see if there is any wrong way within me. That's very different than the introspection uh, that we're often prone to, that either looks inside and goes, ah, I feel pretty good about myself, I must be okay, or is constantly nitpicking and pulling apart and, uh, and has no confidence and always assumes we, we've done horrible things. Um, instead, what David suggests is because God is not just the maker of our heart, but the knower of our heart, that we ask him to point out in our lives the things that are wrong. Now remember here, Israel is unique in the fact uh, that they have this covenant laid out under Moses, uh, of which one of the signs of being off track in the covenant is famine. And so on top of that, he's basically just taking God at his word and saying, okay, you promised that if we as a nation turned away from you, that there would be consequences like this. Is that what's going on? And so he sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Now, a couple of things to lay out so that we can understand that. The first is, notice here, God makes a connection between the fruitfulness of the land and murder. Um, The reason why that's worth pointing out is when you go all the way back to Genesis with Cain and Abel, the same statement is made. In fact, when God approaches Cain about the murder of Abel, he says, where is your brother? And Cain, you know, responds famously, am I my brother's keeper? And he says, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And remember, part of the curse of Cain is that the ground that he used to work successfully, remember he would brought a bounty of goods to God in sacrifice, now wouldn't yield any fruit. And so it's the same way in Israel. There's a correlation between, um, between the shed blood of murder and the consequence on the ground. And here it comes down to Saul who had put Gibeonites to death. Now, the Gibeonites are not one of the tribes of Israel. They're one of the prior occupants of Canaan. You may remember back in the book of Joshua, after the victory over Jericho, when uh, Israel was still kind of riding high on this amazing, miraculous victory as a city with huge walls just collapses in front of them and not a man of Israel uh, is killed. Uh, That the Gibeonites come and deceptively say, we're from really far away, we've heard all about you, you can tell we're far away because our bread is dry, our shoes are worn out, our clothes are holy, but in actuality they were just over the next hill. And so they they trick Israel into a non-aggression pact, and God requires that Israel honor it. And so what happens here is years later, here the Gibeonites have been living in the land, and Saul decides you know what, you guys have lived long enough, and he begins in some way to attack them and take their lives. Um, but God sees that as being blood guilt, as not, uh, not an innocent action, one that Saul uh, is guilty of, and this is where God lays his finger, and he says this is the problem. Um, now, One of the things that I think we should point out really quickly here is actually Saul's behavior makes a lot of sense, okay? Um, If you look at the land of Israel, Jericho and Gibeah are in the dead center north and south. In fact, it makes a lot of sense of the strategy that Joshua is given to conquer the land of Canaan, because it's a divide and conquer. He breaks the center of Israel first, Jericho, Gibeah, Ai, and then moves south and then moves north, okay? It's divide and conquer. The concern here that's new for Saul is the Philistines. If the Philistines were to get the Gibeonites on their sides, then Israel would be effectively split in half and there'd be this enemy line in the middle of Israel, okay? And so it makes political sense uh, but it breaks the word of Israel to these people, okay? The Gibeonites had effectively been given, uh, given the word of Israel, and God holds Israel to that word. But as we saw with Saul, matters like that don't really matter to Saul. He's, he is a king of broken promises, both before the Lord and uh, to people, including David, And so here's the problem. Uh, It's also worth considering here um, that the Gibeonites at this point in history history are foreigners living in the land of Israel and therefore vulnerable, right? Prone to mistreatment, uh, prone to being slighted, taken advantage of. In fact, although Deuteronomy makes a lot of laws to protect people like this, foreigners living in the midst of Israel, um, there's also certain things that aren't available to them, okay? And so, as we'll see, that becomes significant here, but God cares about these vulnerable people uh, living in the midst of Israel, and many of them have died at the hand of Saul. So... Verse two, the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. One last thing there. Notice that this was zealous and wrong. Okay. For Saul, we can imagine it could even be greater than just a national zeal. This could be reflected as a religious zeal. This is for the sake of God's people. But murder is murder, and it's seen as such here. And so, verse 3, David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and how shall I make atonement, that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? Now notice, when he uses that word atonement there, That word, which is uh, of primary significance in the book of Leviticus, it means a couple of things. First, it assumes guilt. No guilt, no need for atonement, okay? Second, it recognizes that the only way that guilt can be dealt with is death. And so even when there's an atonement, this is a substitution, okay? Uh, And so in the book of Leviticus, that comes in the form of an innocent animal, Here, the question is, how can we possibly set this right? Remember, Saul is dead at this point, okay? Uh, But so are many of the Gibeonites, and so how can I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, it's not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, neither is it for for us to put any man to death uh, in Israel. And so notice two statements they make here. First, it's not an issue of money. And the Bible recognizes this as well, that human life is so valuable that it can't be uh, set right, a death can't be set right through financial compensation. Now, in modern legislation, we recognize that death often brings hardship on other people, and so we, we seek to do that, but we can't put a money tag and uh, buy back the death of a loved one financially. And so the first thing they say is it can't be about money. And then the second thing they say uh, is uh, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. The second thing is we don't have an outlet here that we could take things of ourselves, that we could deal with things appropriately. Israel recognized uh, the uh, significance of uh, tribes seeking justice through the... um, the Avenger of Blood, which was basically a family representative seeking justice uh, in the case of murder uh, and, and death. And so we've read about that in the cities of refuge earlier in the book, but that wasn't open to them. There was no appointed system for them to deal with this. Uh, basically, uh, they're pointing out what they need here. And so David clarifies, what do you say that I should do for you? And they said to the king, the man who consumed us and plan to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel. That's Saul, okay? And so notice Saul's intention here was to wipe them out. We're not told how successful he was, um, but obviously here what we have in the Gibeonites is a remnant. And so he sa- they say, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. Um, Now, a couple of things here. Um, First, they select seven of Saul's sons, and they ask that they be put to death to make things right. Um, And we should recognize, even as is, the math on that doesn't make sense because this isn't their campaign against the Gibeonites. These are the children, right? And even, uh, even the Bible talks about the fact that God doesn't judge the children for their parents' sins. However, we also need to recognize that there is a significant relationship between our behavior and the consequences that that brings and the people around us, especially those closest to us. And the second thing we have to recognize here is by only taking these seven men, uh, we should probably read this as an act of mercy, okay? This closes the deal on it, and I doubt highly that only seven Gibeonites died right and so this isn't this even isn't even eye for an eye tooth for a tooth justice the number seven is probably chosen to be symbolic and then notice here it says that they would hang before the Lord Um, whether this is talking about hanging from a tree or killed and then elevated as we've seen in other places it clearly reminds us of the book of Deuteronomy which talks about those who are exposed in such a way who hang from a tree or cursed before the Lord. And so the recognition here uh, is, is the curse of consequence, of the blood guilt. Uh, and so they're not given usual capital punishment uh, or burial. They, they want the significance of this to be put out. Now, one thing you should probably keep in mind here is that there is a, a preventative nature to a punishment like this. Uh, in other words, there's an example made here that mistreatment of the Gibeonites will not be tolerated. Okay. Right now I'm reading um, the works of G.K. Chesterton, and I'm reading his newspaper articles, which he wrote one, um, one a week, every week, for almost 35 years. And where I'm reading right now is right after the end of World War I. And at the time there were many who were pushing for, let's not really talk about blame in the war, let's not really talk about who started it, what we need is just peace. And Chesterton expresses over and over again, he says, but if we don't bring consequence on the initiator of this war, what incentive is there for another tyrant to not start a war if he knows at the end the guilt will all be divided up and we'll all be guilty? I think we may not generally walk down those paths mentally today but I think it's worthwhile to consider the significance of this and you cannot you cannot deeply value those on death row without risking valuing those whose lives they took and so there's a balance there and there's a tension okay Um, and so David David agrees to this he says I will give them verse 7 but the king spared Mephibosheth now Um, Saul broke a promise, a pact, but notice David does not do so in sparing Mephibosheth. Just like the Gibeonites graciously uh, being given, despite their deception, a place in Israel, so also Mephibosheth is just graciously, because he's the son of Jonathan, not because of his own behavior, given a place at David's table, and so he's not an option for this. Instead, uh, here, the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of uh, Saul's son of Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armani and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Mirab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Melahathite, And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of the harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. Okay. Uh, So here, remember, what was the consequence that was coming on Israel? It's famine. And so we have a harvest timeline laid out, and then that's important for verse 10. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until the rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. Okay, so get the picture here. These, uh, these seven are left exposed to the elements until the famine is over. And so Rizpah, who's one of the mothers, to her beautiful motherly credit, puts on traditional mourning garments and stays with them day after day to make sure that their bodies aren't desecrated by Uh, by wild animals and such. She's just there protecting them. In other words, they've lost their lives, but she seeks as best as possible to maintain their dignity, as does David, verse 11. When David was told uh, what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Beth-shan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Geboah. So Saul actually had a similar death where he was killed on the battlefield and then hung up on a wall, as was Jonathan. But David gathers not only them, but also these seven, verse 13, he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged, that's the seven, and they buried the bones of Saul and the son of Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zala, in the tomb of Kish, his father, and they did all that the king commanded, and after that, God responded to the plea for the land. There was water again. But notice here, David honors honors Saul and Jonathan and these other seven men and makes sure they have a proper burial in their family tomb in Benjamin. Verse 15, there was war again between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines, and David grew weary. Now remember here, we've seen David as an aging general, but now it comes to a point where right in the middle of the battle, he just taps out. He runs out of energy. And it says in verse 16, and Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants whose spears weighed 300 shekels of bronze, and it was armed with a new sword thought to kill David. Okay. And so he's out on the front lines and there's this giant, just like the Philistines had Goliath. Here's another one. Um, and so he's barreling down on David, verse seventeen. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, "You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel." And so they say, "From now on, we'll fight on the front lines. Your life is more than just our general." Now remember, Abishai and all of these other men—they learned everything: their courage, their tactics everything from David. And so what we're seeing here is not just an aging king, but also uh, a second generation of strength and courage uh, that are raising up. And so they recognize that David's value is more than this, and that they can't risk him on the front lines again. And so notice verse 18, after this, there again was war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibekai, the Hushaiith struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was war with the Philistines at Gob, and Elhanan, the son of Jer-Origim, the Bethlehemite struck down Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver beam. And so notice here, it's not just David who slew a giant, but now the men he has raised up after him. That's why this story is being told. you know. And significantly, we could talk about the fact that every generation can't live on the victories in the Christian life of the generation before it. I think that's a viable point to make. Um, But it's also worth pointing out here uh, that that David can't finish the work and those who come after him have to follow in his footsteps. Um, As Warren Wiersbe used to say, God buries the worker but continues the work. And so what we're seeing here is that unlike the days of Judges, where a hero would just raise up, and when the hero died, so did Israel, uh, here David has successfully raised up people. uh, And remember here, this is not just courage. As we'll see in just a second, this is faith. These are not just mighty men, but men who have learned that the fight they're in is uniquely divine. Divine. That God is the one who gives the victories in Israel. And so they lean into that trust just as they learned from David. Um, Verse 20, there was again a war at Gath where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. And he was also descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants." And so, even here, the author recognizes that these giants fell by the hand of David because he's the one who strengthened the hands of his men. Continuing on here in chapter 22. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies, from the hand of Saul, he said. Now what follows in this chapter we know is Psalm 18. Um, it's recorded here to, to give us, in the same way, like we go and see a film at the, at the movie theater, and you know that song that plays during the credits is selected with care, right? It's to be a, a thematic summation of everything you've watched. In the same way here, this song and the next one that follows, uh, they're, they're David Swan songs. In this one, we see David looking back on his life, and I want you to think significantly about what this would be like in other cases, okay? Before we even talk about politically, the first thing I thought of with with the final song that looks back on life was Frank Sinatra's My Way, right? That's his theme. That says, you want to understand who I am? You want to understand my life? You want to know the theme of Frank Sinatra? It's this, I did it my way right? But on top of that, consider that David is a king who's laying out now his own memorial of his story as king. And we've, we've read and we've encountered and we've seen things like this before. What are they? They're, they're memorializations of the might and power of the king who wrote it, who says, don't forget, I was, you know, the one. I was, you know, the big contender, you know, uh, but David's is so different than that. And in doing so, David also uh, lets us into uh, why we know him as the, the sweet psalmist. Listen to the song he records here The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. And so as he looks back on his life, what he basically says is God has always been there. He's been a very present help in times of trouble. And I notice also not only does he see God as his rock, his fortress, his deliverer, his savior, his refuge, but also notice the repeated possessive singular pronoun, my, my. He doesn't just know this God as the God of Israel, but as his deliverer. There's a personal relationship. He has experienced personal benefits. And then he starts to describe what his life was often like in verse 5. For the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me, and the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord to my God I called. From his temple he heard my voice and my cry uh, came to his ears. So notice the words of David here are in danger and in weakness. It's as if he's drowning. It's as if death itself has tendrils and it's dragging him down to Sheol, to the place of the dead. And from the temple, God hears his voice. And then notice how God responds. Verse 8, then the earth reeled and rocked The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and a devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. Okay, what we call this in poetry is a theophany. Right? It's as if we can see God you know, clothed in the clouds, coming and fighting right on the front lines for David's life. But what I want you to notice here is that, uh, that David recognizes a significant level of love and concern that God has for him, right? He hears that David is in trouble, and God is not um, indifferent to those cries. He's angry. He rises up. He does something about it. And so, verse 12, he made darkness around him his canopy, thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And so, from David's small, quiet, almost drowned out cry, hears the response of God, and it thunders, it's loud. Um, Verse 15, he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen and the foundation of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord and the blast of the breath of his nostrils. And so here we see what deliverance looks like. It's miraculous. It's all the work of God. David here doesn't even see him as an instrument of deliverance, but one in need of delivering. And God is the deliverer. And then he walked through how he got to where he is. Verse 17, he sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued rescued me because he delighted in me. I think that's a line that's worth meditating on. David was saved from his trouble because God delighted in David. Okay. Verse 21, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. Now we read that and we go, I can definitely remember sometimes you got your hands dirty, David. But he's not speaking here as giving a, a, a statement of total purity and innocence. Just read some of his other Psalms. Uh, What he's recognizing is both in these circumstances, his enemies had no justification, and in the broad reality of his life, he truly was a worshiper of God. So yes, he'd sinned, but his hands were clean because as Nathan told him after Bathsheba, your sins will no longer be held against you. He's not presenting himself here as someone who's never sinned, but someone who's forgiven of his sins, okay? And he says in verse 22, I've kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. That also, I think, is a significant line in this psalm because that really does define David's ministry. He sought the mercy of God, and so we see consistently how merciful David is with his enemies. Now, God is often righteous and just with the enemies of David, but when David is given an opportunity to show mercy, he always does, okay? And that's because he knows here that that's who God is. And so, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous, Now, the idea there is not, notice, with the crooked, you also are crooked, okay? Just because you're a deceiver doesn't mean God deceives you, but it does mean that there's a bit of cleverness in God's dealing with the deceiver. How many times do we find poetic justice or ironic ends come to the enemies of Israel, right? Um, Think in the book of Esther, when this guy whose entire endeavor is to hang this faithful Jew, ends up hanging on the gallows that he's built, right? Um, That's what it's talking about here. And then notice this, verse 28, you save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect, The word of the Lord proves true, meaning he keeps his promises. He's a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Now, a particularly interesting study to do is to flip all the way back to 1 Samuel, to chapter 2, and look at the song of Hannah. Remember, Hannah is a barren woman who asks God for a son, and when God gives that son, she gives him back to God, and that's Samuel. But the song of Hannah in response to her pregnancy uh, shares many themes with this psalm. And so in doing so, it kind of envelops the whole story of Samuel uh, with these themes. And a significant one is the difference between how God raises up the humble and, and resists the haughty and the proud. Uh, we'll see another one in just a second. And then notice here, he doesn't just uh, rejoice in who God or what God has done for him, but in who God is and the uniqueness of who God is. Verse 32, for who is God but the Lord and who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. I don't know if you guys have watched Planet Earth 2 yet, uh, but there's an episode where I'm pretty sure it's goats and they're watching them literally run straight down a sheer cliff. It doesn't make any sense until you watch it in slow motion, but they're selecting the smallest little places to plant their feet as they move down the mountain, and they never slip a step. It's insane to watch. David, living in the land of Israel where there's deer present and lots of cliff sides, he's seen this, and he says, that's what it's like when I walk with God. Right? I'm in a dangerous way, but my feet are like the feet of uh, deer, and even the precipice becomes a place of security. He trains my hand for war so that my arms can bend a, bro, a bow of bronze. And so he says, even the strength I have is God-given. You've given me the shield of your salvation, and your gentleness made me great. That's another one that I would encourage you to meditate on. You gave me a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. Those who hated me and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with my peoples. You kept me as the head of the nations. People who I had not known served me. Now that's a reference to a promise that's made by Moses, okay, uh, for Israel as a whole. And here David recognizes that in his rule, it's coming to pass that foreigners are recognizing uh, God's work in Israel. Verse 45, foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives and blessed my rock. Blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. Especially in the second half of David's life with Absalom and uh, with uh, all of these people, we see David delivered and over and over again from men of violence. And then notice this, verse 50, For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Now what's interesting is if you look at First Samuel 2, verse 10, you get the last line of Hannah's song. And in the same order, it, exalt, it, it uh, praises God for the king and the anointed one. Once again, like I said, this song operates as a capstone, as the final recall of, of Hannah's song, which is in some ways the opening overture of the book of Samuel, whereas here we have the closing credits. Now the last thing that's recorded is referred to here as the last words of David. And it may be that this is the last song that David writes. Obviously, these aren't his deathbed words. Uh, They're the last words, and they're the last public proclamation. But it may be more significant than just being another psalm of David and the last one he wrote. What I want you to notice uh, is the next word there. It says, the oracle of David. Okay, this is unique. Because here, David recognizes his own role as prophet. Something that both Jesus and the apostles affirm. That when David spoke, even in the Psalms, he spoke through the Holy Spirit. And that he didn't just speak of his own experience, uh, but spoke the very word of God. And oftentimes, consider, uh, consider Peter's um, sermon in Acts chapter 4 as he's speaking to a group of Jews, and he quotes from the Psalms, for you will not let my soul see corruption, nor will you leave me in Sheol. And he says, I tell you this truly, David's tomb is still here, and he did not speak this of himself, but of the anointed one, his descendant, who was to come, and that's Jesus, and he was raised from the dead, right? Um, and so here, there's a recognition of the prophetic role of David during the reign of David. That's significant, okay? Okay. Um, so here, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. Do you see the um, claim that David is making there? He's saying, my mouth is open because God has given me a word. It's the same thing we see in the prophets in Isaiah and Jeremiah. And he continues here, He says, the God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to spout from the earth. So what does God speak here through David? That a just ruler is a blessing to his people. Right, that's the idea here. It's like, it's like sun first thing in the morning and the warmth that comes with it after a long night. It's like the rain that makes the plants grow. Okay? It brings life is the idea here. Verse five, for does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desires? So notice the last song looks back over David's life. This one looks forward prophetically to his descendants and specifically to Jesus. And what he recognizes is that there is life and fruitfulness coming and justice. And then he contrasts, uh, he, he says here, verse six, but worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away for they cannot be taken with the hand But the man who touches them arms himself with iron in the shaft of a spear, and they're utterly consumed with fire. Now, it's very likely that this is the imagery Jesus picks up when he gives the parable of of the fields. And much like here, he talks about uh, the wheat and the tares, the life-giving plants and the weeds. And the weeds are divided and burned and separated, okay? What David is conveying through this here is that life, in the biggest capital L sense of it, is bound up in allegiance with, in standing with, in submission to the one who would come in the everlasting covenant, the son of David, okay? Um, and so when Jesus shows up on the scene and announces himself as such, this is the claim that he's making. He's, uh, in fact, Matthew opens this way, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, what? The son of David. It's the first thing Matthew wants us to know, okay? Um, and so here, what I want you to notice is even the author of 2 Samuel recognizes that David is not the sum total of God's plan for Israel and that his shortcomings, as we've read in the book, are not surprising because he's only the beginning and not the end. He's only the shadow and not the fulfillment, and David knows it too. He's already looking forward um, one of the significant things we look for in types, okay? A type is like a prophecy, except it exists in the physical realm, okay? So the tabernacle is a type. Uh, The priesthood is a type. The sacrifices are types. Uh, But David as king uh, and as prophet, and as we'll see in a second, even in his orchestration with the temple that is somewhat priestly, is a personification of what's coming, He's a living prophecy, if you will, of what's to come. Not a perfect one because just, uh, um, just like you would expect, uh, he's only a picture. He's, he's only a reflection. He's only uh, a half. I don't even like to put a measurement on it because how can you compare it? Um, but he only is to give us the gist of who the one who, to come is. Um, but nonetheless, he's, he's a lens through that and we see that here. And so remember the structure, okay? Sin of the king of Israel, consequence, David fixes it, and then we have mighty men, and now we have the Psalms. We've done two of them, so it's back to mighty men, and that's what we get here in verse eight. These are the names of the mighty men who David had. Now, all of the names that follow, remember where these guys come from. When David first goes out running from Saul, it says that all those who were despairing and in debt uh, and were discouraged and destitute. I can't remember what the 3D words are, but there's three of them there. Uh, they're, they're basically rough men in hard places. But by the end of David's life, they are mighty men. They are um, the 30, as we'll see they're called, and they have their own stories to tell. But this is basically part of David's legacy. All of these men are incredibly, as we'll see, incredibly loyal to David. And the reason is because just like God did with David when he was just a shepherd that nobody knew and his father didn't even remember as being someone, you know, the prophet who came over for dinner might want to meet. In the same way, David saw these people who everybody else kind of thought nothing of and, and saw them through until they were something more. And so these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Bathshebeth, Atachmanite was the chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time, okay? And so that's a tremendous uh, victory and and mark of might. Verse 9, next to him among the three, the mighty men of Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the son of Ahoy. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered together for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. So the rest of the army leaves, and he stays at his post and continues to fight until his hand seizes up, and he can't even let go of his sword anymore. Um, and the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the man returned after him only to strip the slain. In other words, by the time the troops realized they'd left one behind and got back, there was no enemies left standing. The only thing left to do was was to loot the dead, Um, but notice the important statement there. Where did the victory come from? Not from this mighty guy who had all of this courage. It was provided by God. These men are mighty as David was. They're mighty in the Lord. Verse 11, and next to him was Shammah, the son of Agri, the Herite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the men fled from the Philistines, but he took a stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. Okay, so there's these three, and they're kind of the top of the chain, the most honorable. And then, verse 13, three of the thirty chief men went down and came about at harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam. And when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim, David was in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. Okay, let's lay out some geography here. So this is while David is hiding in the caves from Saul and some Philistines have moved into the land of Israel near there, including David's hometown of Bethlehem. And so they've now conquered the place where he grew up. And notice what he says here. Verse 15, David said longingly, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that's by the gate. He's reflecting on his hometown and his love for it. And he wishes he could just enjoy that. He's also inherently bemoaning the fact that it's now enemy territory. But this is how loyal the men of David are. Look at what happens next, verse 16. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. And so three of them overhear this. And they break away from the rest of the army and on their own they break through the front lines of the Philistine army into the city, gather up some water from the well and bring it back to David. Okay. Notice there is no military strate- strategic value to that. Uh, David is not dying of thirst. You know, this isn't a rescue mission. They just want to please him so much. Now, notice what David does. Uh, but he would not drink of it, and he poured it out to the Lord, okay? And so here, he wouldn't take of it. Now, notice here, he's not, he's not, he still values their sacrifice. What he denies is that he's worth the sacrifice. And so it says here that he poured it out before the Lord, because God is the only one worthy. And although these men fight for David, they really don't. Okay. And so it's almost here that David rightly recognizes something that we often forget, which is that we can drink the Kool-Aid of our own influence. Right? We can believe our own headlines. We can start to feel because people respect us so much that we're tremendously respectable and allow people to live for us in a significant way, or even here, die for us in a significant way. And David, as he often does, he doesn't just... He doesn't just deny their devo- devotion, he redirects it. I think that's significant. It's not just the humility that just tries to put that to death. He says, no, there, there is one who's worthy of worship, it's just not me. Verse 18, now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, was chief of the thirty, and he wielded his spear against three hundred men and killed them, and won a name beside the three. He was most renowned of the thirty and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three, okay? And so there's the three, and now there's the 30, and at the head of the 30, and leading the 30, and with the most honor is Abishai. And we've encountered Abishai many times. He's the one, he's the only one, who when Saul and his camp are asleep, sneaks all the way through all of the sleeping soldiers to where Saul and his number one guard are sleeping and is standing there with David, right? He's also the one who is so... Um, so loyal to David that anytime anyone slights him or stands against him, his first response is, just let me take him out, right? Um, but he is, he is the most notable about, uh, among the 30. And then verse 20, and Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Casbiel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. Uh, Now, I mean, I don't know of any sentence in scripture that reads more like a remember when story, right? You know, uh, he struck down, uh, uh, he struck down a lion in a pit on a snowy day, you know, um, an impressive feat, even if it seems uh, an unnecessary one. I mean, the lion was already in the pit. It wasn't hurting anyone. Um... Verse twenty-one: He struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Maniha went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. What does that say? He he had no problem bringing a knife to a gunfight, right? He he wasn't afraid of uh, higher uh, military technology. He's just got a staff. This other guy's got a spear, and he just makes the spear his own and kills this Egyptian. He was, verse 23, renowned among the 30 but did not attain to the three and David set him over his bodyguard. Ashel, the brother of Joab, was one of the 30. Elena the son of Doda of Bethlehem. Shammah of Herod. Elkiah of Herod. Halez the Paliite. Ira, the son of Ishka of Tekoa. Abiezer of Anoth. Mabuni of the Hushite. Zalmun, the Alohite. Merhi of Nephnetopha. Haleb, the son of Banna, of Natopha, Ittai, the son of Ribbi, Gibeah, the son of, uh, the, of the people of Benjamin, Benia of Parathon, Hidai of the brooks of Gaash; Abai, Albon, the Arbathite, the of Beruim, Eliba the Shablionite, the sons of Joshan, Jonathan, Shammah, the Hazreite, Aham, of the, uh, of the son of Shear, the Harite, Eliphate, the son of Abishai of Macha. Now notice this one. Eliam, the son of Ahithophel of Gilo. That is Bathsheba's father. Okay. That makes the crime of David even more heinous because it wasn't just the wife of, as we'll see in a second, one of his mighty men, but also the daughter of one of his mighty men, um, of the people who were most loyal to David. And remember, it's Ahithophel, uh, who turns against David when Absalom does and becomes his counselor? Verse 35. Hezro of Carmel, Parai the Abrite, Egal the son of Nathan of Zoba, Bani the Gadite, Zalek the Ammonite, Nahari of Beeroth, the armor bearer of Joab, the son of Zariah, Ira the Ethrite, Gareb the Ethrite, and Uriah the Hittite. That's the husband of Bathsheba. 37 in all. Now, the only other observations that we can make from this list that are kind of interesting is there is a lot of folks from Judah here, but there's also quite a few from other tribes, including a Benjamite. I don't know if you noticed him. Uh, There's also quite a few non-Jewish folks um, from the surrounding peoples of Israel that we've encountered beforehand. And I think one of the things that it says that's striking about David as a person was that he just inspired such confidence and loyalty this isn't just blood, this isn't just family, this isn't, you know, um, this is something more significant, and we see it throughout David's life. When David operates, people look at that and they go, that is a king, that is a leader, that is someone worth following, and they do. Okay, so now we get to chapter 24, and it's worth chewing on what happens and is the last word here, because effectively, the last thing we're told is another great sin of David that leads to consequences for all of Israel. It's even more poignant because this appendix, remember, begins with a sin of Saul that David sets right. And so we can applaud that and be like, Saul bad, David good. But the last word in Second Samuel is given to the failure of David. And I think that's significant. A pastor told me a while ago, because I read a book uh, that was published by a ministry that I respected that was terrible, okay? And not only did it say a bunch of crazy things, uh, but it was clearly written by someone uh, who in their old age was starting to experience a slip mentally. And so the logic was beautiful and amazing sometimes, and then it just blip blip and be completely off. And I was so mad that this ministry would have published this book. And it came down to being uh, family stuff, nepotism. The only reason the book got published is because he was in the family, and it was just gross, and it really bothered me. And he wisely said to me, he said, you know, I think God is always faithful to knock our heroes off their pedestals before they die. It reminds me of the poet laureate a few years ago. Uh, Nope, not Poet Laureate. He was a prize winner for American Poetry though, Um, but he was 89. And so, uh, the Times or something went to interview him Uh, and in the interview he started going off on how no woman was as good of a writer of any man and bashing Jane Austen and these other things. And I remember listening to it and going, he just tarnished his own career because his kids thought it was a good idea for him to have an interview. You know, this isn't the things he would have said younger in life. Um, but it is worth remembering, you know, that, that all of our heroes, because they're human, are somewhat of a sham. And sometimes we don't find the skeletons buried af- out back till after we bury the skeleton of our heroes. Uh, but it doesn't mean they're not there. And it's the same with David. And so what happens here, what happens here involves a census, verse 1 of 24. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. Now, notice something significant here. Here, it's spoken as if God puts this in David's heart because he wants to bring consequence on Israel. Now, Chronicles also records a parallel account of this, and it uses Satan as the instigator of this thing. And so the question is, okay, so what's really going on here? Is this the sin of David, or is this a temptation of the devil, or is this the plan of God? And I think the only way to resolve all that is to look, for example, at the book of Job and recognize that even Satan functions on the leash of the Lord. And so in the biggest, broadest sense, God's plan here is to make a point and to bring out something in David's heart that exists, whether he has the opportunity to test it or not. Uh, and he utilizes or allows uh, Satan to tempt him in this way, Uh, and then we have the significant and true personal responsibility of David. All of those layers are involved in this story, okay? But the temptation here is to number Israel and Judah, to take a census. Now, when we ask, what's the big deal? There's two really good answers, but we need to read a little bit further to see what they are. So verse 2, the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, that means from north to south, and number the people that I may know the number of my people. So notice his stated motivation. I want to know how many people are in Israel. Second, notice Joab's response in verse three, but Joab said to the king, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times, as many as there are, while the eyes of my Lord the king shall see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? He says, I hope the kingdom continues to grow and flourish under you until the day you die, but why do you need to know the number? Okay, now when it comes to, when it comes to the sin of David here, it involves probably both these things, but at least one of them. The first one, which Joab clearly points to here, is not that David wants to number the people, it's that he delights in knowing how many there are, right? It's pride. It's very similar to the book of Daniel, uh, where, where the king is walking and looking over Babylon and he thinks to himself, behold, Babylon that I have made, right? And that's when he's struck crazy and driven from man because he takes credit for what God has given him. That's the pride here. He wants to know how great Israel is because that's a measure of how great he is. But there's also a second significant part. If you go back to Exodus 30 verse 12, Israel is told that if they number the people of Israel, each one is to present a shekel as a ransom. And the idea there is effectively, if we understand it right, that the people of Israel don't belong to anyone but God. And so it's only God's to count, okay? And so uh, it mentions specifically there in Exodus 30 that if the ransom isn't taken, if that recognition that this is God's people and that each one of them needs to be redeemed for this to happen isn't taken, then a plague will break out. And that is what happens here, but it's not the only thing that could have happened. Um, But both of those things should be in our mind, but ultimately in the heart of David, this is an issue of pride And so Joab tries to get him to resist, but verse 4, the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army, which is amazing. Usually Joab just does what he wants, but David keeps pushing and keeps pushing until Joab bows to this. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aor and from the city that's in the middle of the valley towards Gad and on Jazer, And then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh and the land of the Hittites. They came to Dan and from Dan they went around to Sidon and they came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And they went out of the Negev of Judah uh, at Beersheba, so when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days, okay, two things, one, their route here is circuitorial, you could open to a map in the back and just see that they make a circle here, Uh, and then second, notice that it's a almost 10-month endeavor, now, that's not just important because it shows how thorough it was, it's important because for all of those 10 months, David is fine with what he's doing, okay, Uh, Verse 9, and Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people of the king, uh, of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. Now, that points to one other thing about censi, is that how we'd say it, censuses, Uh, that's worth pointing out. In history, there's only two reasons to take a census, taxes and military conscription, Okay. And recognize here that the count that they actually make is not every man, woman, and child, but those who are eligible as soldiers. Remember, how does Israel's army work? The call is put out, and all those who come, that's the army as it is, and sometimes God sends some of those home. But here, the total possibility, the potential, right? It's the armies of Israel. Um, But it's here, when it's all said and done, that David's convicted, verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I might do it for you. Now, notice here, the conviction begins with David... And he prays and confesses his sin and asks for forgiveness. And we have no reason to believe that's not accomplished. Uh, We'll see it's accomplished in a very significant way in just a second. But there's also consequence. And so, God gives him three choices. And here they are. Verse 13, Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall, one, three years of famine come into your land, or two, will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you, or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? This reminds me exactly of a would-you-rather game, right? Because they're three very different things, longer to shorter, but the significance of the shorter ones is much higher. Now, keep something in mind, okay? Here... If David chooses number one with the enemies of Israel, David's no longer fighting on the front lines, okay? So that doesn't touch his life. If he chooses number two, famine, it also doesn't touch his life because he has tremendous wealth and so he can sit out the famine. It's only the third one that actually David has any skin in the game on. But his motivation here is not just that, but something deeper. And so notice his answer, Verse 14, David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is grace, but let me not fall into the hand of man. In other words, I'll take the plague, please. And what he says is, I would rather entrust myself to the mercy of God than the mercy of men. Now, with the enemies of Israel, that's easy to understand, but what about the famine The recognition there is if Israel has a national famine, they're totally reliant on those who live around them to help them during that time, okay? And so he takes the one that is uniquely and solely the work of God, a plague, and he says, I would rather entrust myself to God to be merciful than involve involve my enemies, okay? So... The Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. Once again here, we see the significant reality and responsibility of leadership, okay? Did the people of Israel sin? No, but 70,000 of them die because of the decision of David. But that's not unnatural or uncommon or unknown. That is inherent in what it means to be an authority, okay? Um, and so here's this horrible thing happening, and when, verse 16, the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it's enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the fleshing, threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite, okay? So the city of David, uh, in modern Jerusalem, it's only a small portion of what it is, And this splashing floor is right outside of it, which would still be Jerusalem today. Um, And then notice verse 17, then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people. Okay, no coincidence here, no natural explanations. David looks out the window and he sees the one who's bringing this plague and he sees him stopped before he enters in Jerusalem. And he said, behold, I've sinned and I've done wickedly but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. He feels the full weight of this and he says, they're experienced the consequence for my personal sin. They're the sheep. I'm the shepherd who's done wrong. Um, but verse 18, Gad came that day to David and said to him, go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing, threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Okay, and so, what is needed here for this to be put to death, for it to be dealt with? Sacrifice. Okay, sacrifice. And so, the sacrifice here is going to happen where the, the angel of death is on hold at uh, the threshing floor of Aruna. So, verse 19 David went up at Gad's word, as the Lord commanded. And when Aruna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming towards, uh, towards him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, why has my Lord the King come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aruna said to David, Let my Lord the King take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing sledges, and the yokes of oxen for all the wood. In other words, Aruna says, Have it. Everything you need, the land is yours. In fact, take some of my animals and some of my carts to build your altar. Everything you can have. Verse 23 All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aruna, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. Now, we could read that in that sentence alone of just being a natural sense of fairness. That doesn't make any sense. He's already feeling the weight of consequences on other people. He has, once again, no skin in the game at this point, and so he refuses, but notice why he refuses here. It's something deeper. He says, no, I'll buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. He understands that sacrifice requires sacrifice, and the truth is, if he were to take these things, then it would be Aruna's sacrifice and not his own, okay? There is a, a significant provocative question that that should enforce on our hearts here, uh, which, is, which is effectively, what is your worship costing you? If it's the same God of David, the one we've read about, who's our refuge and our strength and our fortress and our deliverer, if it's the same God who's merciful to the merciful, uh, you know, who raises up the lowly, if this is the God then we worship, how often do we settle for sacrifices that cost us very little? One of the beauties of this being the last story of David is even though we see that uh, we see that David's heart is sinful, we also see the significant heart of worship in David. And so his response here, remember what he says in the Psalms, sacrifice is not what you've required, O Lord, or I would give it, but the offerings that you accept are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And that's his heart here. He wants to He wants to worship rightly at cost to himself. And so uh, David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. And so notice here we see in this closing chapter the big themes of the history of Israel. The reality of sin, the consequence of death, and the need for a sacrifice to avert that death, right? It's woven through everything and it finishes here, but here's what's amazing, okay? We find out when it comes to Solomon, this is where the temple is built. It's this threshing floor that David buys here where the temple is built. In fact, uh, based on the geography of it here, this is Mount Moriah. This is, you know, the Temple Mount, but the broader Mount here is, is Mount Moriah. This is the place where Abraham offered up Isaac, and it's the place where we find Golgotha. It's on the same slope of the hill of Jerusalem where Jesus will one day die. Um, but remember, as, as amazing as it is that this becomes the real estate of God's presence in Israel in a significant way in the temple, where all of the sacrifices take place, right? Um, where the, the veil will be torn when Jesus dies on our behalf. The circumstances of it Uh, here, I think this is where I'll close. There's no getting around this, that this chapter presents the plan of God and the need of men. And when you ask which one, you know, chicken or the egg, it's hard to disentangle them. They're both involved here. And it's the thing that I love about the sovereignty of God, uh, which is that it's both completely focused on his will and his glory but simultaneously, fully and completely for our benefit. And we can't, uh, I don't even think it's always wise to try and um, elevate one over the other. I mean, in in one sense, God's glory is the clear reason he does everything, Um, but but at the same time, we constantly find this pursuing heart of God that cares for us and loves us, uh, and they're both bound up here uh, in this final story. And once again, it capitulates not just the themes of Samuel that we've seen, which is this need for a righteous ruler and a just ruler, which is sometimes personified by David's righteousness and justice, and sometimes uh, resonated by his falling short of that, um, but also God's great plan of provision. So, so ends 2 Samuel. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the energy you gave us to go through this, especially because it's an hour later than our clocks tell us, and we're tired. And I pray, Lord, that you would craft in us a heart like David. We know that like David, we will fail, we will sin. Sometimes we will do so deeply. Sometimes we will do so rebelliously. Sometimes we will sit in our sin for months and months like David did. But I pray, Lord, uh, that we would be swift by the power of your spirit towards repentance and that we would remember like the son of the father in Jesus' parable, that we would come to ourselves sitting in the mud of our sin, eating or wishing we could eat as well as the pigs and remember our father's household. And I pray like the son in that story, Lord, we would be regularly and consistently overwhelmed by your grace that doesn't just make us a servant in your house but a son that kills the fatted calf and throws a party and rejoices for my son who was dead is now alive and we thank you lord for the covenant you gave to david the promises of the one who would come after the one who david himself would call lord we thank you lord in jesus name amen